Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Three times a losing presidential candidate and a famous defender of creationism, William Jennings Bryan is not one of history's big winners. But one innovation of his has withstood time. On the 5th of November, 1896, Bryan sent a telegram from his Nebraska home to William McKinley in Canton, Ohio. Returns indicate your election, the message read, adding his congratulations. We've submitted the issue to the American people, and their will is law. The first formal concession of a presidential race, it began a tradition that endured through the bitterest campaigns. We've known who won this year's election for two weeks now. No concession so far. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what difference does not conceding really make? President Trump shows no sign of cooperating with a handover to the Biden administration. Most elected Republicans haven't acknowledged the result, and polls show a huge majority of Republican voters view Biden's win as illegitimate. How worried should we be? In this episode, we'll find out how a presidential transition is supposed to work, how the current upheaval among national security bureaucrats falls short, and how Richard Nixon dealt with a disputed election. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the Washington correspondent. Charlotte, how are you doing? You're heading for more months of homeschool, it looks like. It seems that way. de Blasio announced on Wednesday that schools would go remote on Thursday. Restaurants are still open, so I saw someone suggest that we should just have the children go to school in restaurants, and, and maybe that would be a solution. But yeah, I mean, I think the city as a whole is heading into further lockdowns. So we'll see how long it lasts. It may be a few months. John, how about you? How do things look where you are? Uh, well, we are just north of the city. We're about uh, about a 15-minute drive north of the Bronx. Um, schools are not yet closed, although my son's has been closed for two weeks because of a COVID outbreak there. But I imagine it's only a matter of time also before we, we shut down and go fully remote. And how does all this affect your Thanksgiving plans? Well... Thanksgiving is usually sort of my big holiday in our family. I'm Jewish. My wife is Christian. So the way we split it is we usually do Christmas with her family and Thanksgiving with mine. My absolute favorite day of the year is the day before Thanksgiving, which I spend cooking with my brother and sister all day. That's not happening this year. We're just doing the four of us, which is sad, but uh, which we have to do. It's better to, to not see family than to inadvertently kill them, I think. Not I think. It definitely is. I don't think anyone can argue with that. How about you, Charlotte? 
Um, John Fasman and I go into this holiday with very different set of skills. I'm a great guest at Thanksgiving. I don't uh, specialize in hosting. And so this will be an interesting test this year because I can't rely on anyone else's culinary abilities. So hopefully we won't be eating PB&J, but we'll see. I guess one upside of people being away from their extended families during Thanksgiving is that they won't get into the usual arguments over politics. But that, of course, is what the podcast is for. Something very unusual is going on in American democracy at the moment. We have this strange no-concession transition, and we're going to be trying to work out how worrying that is on this episode. But before we go into details of how unusual this post-election period is shaping up to be, it's worth perhaps setting out how a model transition is supposed to play out. The Partnership for Public Service is a non-partisan outfit that advises presidential teams on how to run a transition. Max Steyer is its chief executive and the perfect person to shed some light on this complex process. In the United States, the government is a huge institution. You're looking at a $5 trillion entity with hundreds of operating units, 4 million employees when you count the uniformed uh, services and reservists, 2 million of those being career civil servants, and 4,000 political appointments that a typical American president makes. And a successful transition is all about ensuring that the new administration is ready on day one to run the government effectively. That lift is large and difficult and not one that has been done very well in the past. Well, the last transition was famously bad, right? Michael Lewis wrote about it in his book, The The Fifth Risk, the 2016-2017 one. And he describes a transition where Obama White House officials and officials in the agencies prepared these long briefings for the incoming Trump administration folks who then just failed to show up because they didn't appear to be very interested in the agencies they were about to run. Was it really as bad as that? It was. Michael Lewis is a phenomenal and insightful author, and he was spot on in terms of identifying that failure to really understand what was happening, despite the opportunity. Uh, that existed. And the Obama administration had really committed to doing everything they could to ensure that the Trump team was ready to go, but the offer was not picked up and accepted. The other area where the Trump team failed, and again, this is one of the core elements of good transitioning, is in getting their leadership team in place. So they were the slowest of any modern administration in getting folks into Senate-confirmed positions. And by contrast, the Bush to Obama transition in 2008 is sometimes held up as a gold standard for transitions. Why is that the case? It is true. The best handoff that has occurred so far in in, in the modern notion of of transition was the Bush handoff to, to Obama. President Bush had come in in 2000 and had a truncated transition that had occurred because of the dispute over the election result. And so they did not actually get started formally in terms of the critical transition period until mid-December. So fast forwarding, President Bush really saw that his responsibility was to ensure that the handoff was as good as it could possibly be. They held a tabletop exercise where they brought the most senior leadership, the outgoing cabinet with the incoming cabinet. That tabletop exercise is now also an example of something that's been codified in law that is supposed to take place.
John, I don't know about you, but I was quite looking forward to leaving Donald Trump behind this week, both on the podcast and in the weekly edition. But that hasn't been possible. Once again, we're going through this familiar pattern that's become you know, a dance we've done over the past four years. Donald Trump does something unprecedented. It feels like the use of the word unprecedented journalists in the Trump era is in itself unprecedented. And then we have to try and figure out, okay, is this a thing to worry about? Or is this a thing that is really unusual and probably bad, but ultimately, you know, not too damaging. So with the no concession transition that seems to be underway, let's break this down into a couple of bits. And I think the first bit is to look at the practical consequences of Donald Trump not conceding, which means delaying the formal process of the transition beginning. How worrying is that? How much damage in practice does it do, do you think? I think the longer it goes on, the more damage that it risks, particularly since ideally we would have sort of a unified public health message from the beginning. We would have the Biden team up to scratch from the beginning. He would already be talking to uh, Anthony Fauci, Deborah Burks, the CDC. It's also somewhat worrying from a national security perspective. One of the findings of the 9-11 Commission was that the delayed transition in 2000 may have contributed to the security risk that led to the attacks. So I think that there are all kinds of ways in which it, it could be quite damaging. And the longer it goes on, the the, the greater the risk that, that at least something slips through and there's some sort of error caused by a delayed transition. I think there two ways to break down the risks. One is the mechanics of the transition, as John Fasman pointed out, and what it means for the Biden administration's ability to set up a functioning set of cabinet agencies to have a good understanding of classified information so that they can protect America's national security, a seamless transition so that you could try to more effectively deal with COVID, which is as we've discussed, going to see a big uptick in cases over the next two months. And then there's a broader question, which we talk about in this week's issue of governability. You know, if you have such a large share of Republicans, um, more than 80% of Republicans who think that the election was illegitimate, and you have a divided uh, government with a Democrat controlling the White House and Republicans controlling the Senate, I mean, presumably the goal, right, should be to find some areas of common interest to help the country's economy to recover and to deal with COVID uh, in addition to the whole broader swath of priorities and, and issues that America faced before the coronavirus pandemic. And continuing to have this uncertainty undermines that goal. And that sort of brings up another risk that we haven't quite talked about, which is the broader, not just the functioning risk, but the sort of the political risk, right, that it obtains from Donald Trump convincing his supporters that Joe Biden won because of fraud. And it really is the share of his supporters who believe that really is unprecedented. In 2000, 36% of Al Gore supporters thought the result was illegitimate. And I believe that poll was taken before Gore's concession. And in 2016, 23% of Clinton's voters, of Hillary Clinton's voters, thought that Donald Trump's election was illegitimate. But again, Hillary Clinton herself conceded the next day. Now, 86% of Trump voters currently think the result was illegitimate. And that raises a problem, right? If a large share, even not a majority, but a large share of the Republican base believes that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president, then why would their elected representatives ever cooperate with him on anything? It sort of raises the risk of gridlock. It removes an incentive for for cooperation. 
and it, it, it really can have a damaging long-term effect on, on America's governance and governability. Yeah, that 86% number is in our YouGov poll, and I've actually seen the crosstabs of the latest poll, and it's up a little bit to 88% of Trump voters now saying that Biden's win was illegitimate. And I agree with you, John, that creates a problem for governance. You know, Why would elected Republicans do deals with Democrats if their voters believe that the Democratic president is illegitimate? But it also creates no incentive for the Republican Party to change course at all. You know, if most Republicans genuinely believe that the president won this thing, why would they think that they need to change in order to win another election? Because, well, they did win, right? Right. I'm curious about the share of, of Republican elected officials who would tell you off the record, in their heart of hearts, whether they believe Donald Trump legitimately won the election. I would guess the number is probably in the single digits. But of course, there's a first mover problem, right? Nobody wants to be the first one to come out and say, you know, it's time to move on, Mr. President, you fought the good fight, it's time to move on, because anyone with ambitions, 2024 ambitions to hold their seat is going to need Donald Trump's voters, at least in the short term, they think they will need Donald Trump to gain his voters. I'm not sure how true that's going to be in the long term. I think people may be overestimating his staying power. But at least for now, it does create that first mover problem. There's a great line in a leader this week on Republicans in the election that say that the failure to acknowledge that Joe Biden won the presidency is expedience dressed up as principle. And I think that that's right. I mean, there's Georgia runoff. Uh, they're looking at their own prospects, some of them in just two years in, in the House who will be running again. So there are plenty of good political reasons to to wait this out. Just one last thing on that 88% of Trump voters not thinking that Joe Biden won legitimately. I'm Even though it's our poll, I'm slightly suspicious of whether that is a real number in the sense that I think quite a lot of what is going on there is Republican voters being loyal to the tribe. And the head of the tribe is currently saying that there was fraud and it was illegitimate. And therefore, people are sort of going along with that. I struggle to believe that really that 90% of Republicans think, say, that the Secretary of State in Georgia has been cooking the books in a way that favours Joe Biden. So I expect those numbers to drop away a little bit. But even so, 88% is super high. Some very large proportion of the electorate is not going to accept this result, you know, even after Joe Biden is inaugurated on January the 20th. Okay, thank you both. We'll look back at how Richard Nixon gained a similarly disputed election result in a moment. First, a reminder, if you don't subscribe to The Economist already, you're missing out on so much. Subscribing's really simple. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash 2020 election pod. This week's briefing is on the tech war between the US and China. There's a fascinating piece on race and health and news of seals in Lake Baikal. That link again, economist.com slash 2020 election pod. It's in the notes for this episode. When Richard Nixon took to the podium at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles in the early hours of November the 9th, 1960, his supporters were ecstatic. With his wife Pat standing beside him, the vice president waited for his supporters to calm down. Thank you very much. I was going to say that I thought we'd had the last rally of the campaign, but here we go again. He grinned and raised his arms in victory, even as he steeled himself to acknowledge defeat. It is normally the custom for 
a candidate for the presidency or for any other office not to appear until after the decision is definitely known and all the votes are counted beyond doubt. It had been a hard-fought election. The country was facing a crisis of confidence amid the rising power of the Soviet Union. The question before us all, that faces all Republicans and all Democrats, is can freedom in the next generation conquer or are the communists going to be successful? That's the great issue. Senator John Kennedy had mastered the first campaign to have all the trappings of the modern era. TV debates, campaign planes, and slick commercials. Mr. Nixon, what is the truth about our defenses? How strong should they be? We must never let the communists think we are weak. The result was closer than ever. Kennedy's margin of victory in the popular vote was just over 100,000 votes, 0.1%. The prospect of losing to a relative newcomer left shocked Republicans suspecting foul play. And there were good reasons to question some of the results. In Illinois, fewer than 9,000 votes separated the candidates. Chicago Mayor Richard Daley was close to the Kennedys and ran the local party as his personal fief. Kennedy biographer Robert Dalek concludes that he probably stole Illinois from Nixon. In Texas, the home of Kennedy's running mate, the margin was 45,000 votes. Senator Johnson owed the nickname Landslide Linden to rumors he'd rigged previous elections there. Republicans demanded recounts and launched lawsuits. As Thanksgiving approached, with the US attorney and grand jury investigations underway, Republican officials were predicting that the presidency was still in Nixon's grasp. Earl Matzo, a journalist friendly with the vice president, ran a series of stories about the stolen election that he thought would win him a Pulitzer. In Nixon's own memoir, he says he had nothing to do with any of it. He wanted the new president to be able to unite the country. In any case, the legal challenges had come to nothing by December. While the, there are still some results still to come in, uh, if the present trend continues, uh, if Mr. Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, will be the next president of the United States. The words Nixon used that night in L.A. did leave him some wiggle room. And he did nothing to stop allies raising $100,000 for a Nixon recount committee. And once the decision is made, we unite behind the man who is elected. The historian David Greenberg says Nixon's most senior aides were behind the efforts to overturn the result, while Nixon blamed the media for favoring Kennedy. I want Senator Kennedy to know, and I want all of you to know, that uh, certainly if this trend does continue and uh, he does become our next president, that he will have my wholehearted support and your but in public, at least, even the trickiest president remained decorous. As the sitting vice president, Nixon had to chair the Electoral College tally, making him the first to officiate his own defeat in a hundred years. I have great faith about the future of this country. I have great faith that our people, Republicans, Democrats alike, will unite behind our next president in seeing that America, in seeing... 
No one steals the presidency of the United States, he told El Matzo, his journalist friend and biographer. Our country can't afford the agony of a constitutional crisis. I'm now going to bed, and I hope you do too. Thank you. I don't know what we'd do on the podcast without Nixon. There are so many fascinating historical episodes from Nixon's elections and from his presidency. Charlotte, I didn't know before researching this about the Nixon recount campaign, but obviously there are some similarities there with what's going on now. Nor did I, but as regular listeners to this show may know, my general knowledge is pretty abysmal, as evidenced in the quizzes. But I think this time around, it's kind of, it's interesting. There have been so many lawsuits filed, either by the Trump campaign or by its allies, you know, at least two dozen in key swing states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Um, So far, none of these have really gone anywhere. Um, And some of them are over really small number of ballots. So in Arizona, there was an argument of people overvoting, that people seem to choose multiple candidates in a race that would determine that Donald Trump lost. In Maricopa County, uh, there were 190 overvotes. Biden won Arizona by 10,000 votes. So that was dismissed, just as one example. Ronna McDaniel, who's the head of the Republican National Committee, was on TV yesterday, I saw, talking about how the people who were trying to silence Republican critiques of election security were essentially being McCarthyists. And so I think that, you know... There's kind of a gap between the reality of what's happening in the courts and the continued media frenzy and the continued doubts that Republicans sow in their public statements. Yeah, to say there's kind of a gap is a very Howard-esque understatement, I think. I mean, one of the things that I think is fascinating to watch is the difference between the outlandish claims about electoral fraud that are going around, principally being spread by the president. He retweeted one claim that vote counting machines had somehow deleted 2.7 million votes by Trump voters, totally baseless, no evidence for this claim, and it's completely implausible. And then if you read the transcripts of some of these court cases, again and again in these swing states, the judges ask the lawyers for the Trump campaign, okay, so do you have any actual evidence of fraud? And they all have to say, because they're in court and they're under oath, uh, no, we don't. So yeah, there's a complete gap between those two things. I mean, I suspect it, it is true that this is a campaign of misinformation that can have long and damaging results. It's also a fundraising campaign, right? I get, you know, dozens of emails and texts every day from the Trump campaign soliciting funds. One reason to think this may not be a principally legal endeavor is that he's put Rudy Giuliani in charge of it. The last time he was in a courtroom before this week was in 1992, and he is reportedly asking for $20,000 a day. So it is just possible that perhaps he is encouraging Donald Trump to prolong fighting, not for the purest of legal reasons, but for financial reasons. I was really struck, if you break down what happens to the money that you donate in order to supposedly support the recount, you know, about 60% of it goes to the Save America PAC, which is what's called a leadership PAC, which is different from a campaign. The next 40% goes to the RNC. And it's only after the donor has maxed out, which is 5000 for Trump's PAC or 35000 for the RNC, that the money then goes into some of the legal accounts. And it's worth noting that the Save America PAC, which is, um, as I said, a leadership PAC, unlike campaign donations, that can go to pay for personal expenses, 
So that can go to, you know, consulting fees for Don Jr. and Eric, let alone, I don't know what else of other personal expenses the Trump family is incurring. But I think that when you break down the numbers, it helps to lift the veil a bit on what this is about. John, I was talking to a Republican staffer in the Senate last week regarding what's going on in the Republican caucus as regards to accepting this result and acknowledging Joe Biden as the winner of the presidential election. And this staffer said to me, well, the thing you have to understand is Democrats never accepted the result of 2016. They put the president through the whole Russia inquiry. There were lots of people who wore T-shirts saying Trump's not our president, etc. So it's not so different from that. How much merit do you think that argument has? I think that argument has very little merit. Democrats certainly did not like the fact that Donald Trump was elected, but Hillary Clinton conceded early. The Obama administration cooperated with them during the transition. It's true that Democrats conducted oversight, which was unpleasant for Donald Trump, but Republicans also staged months of hearings on Benghazi, which on the merits had far less substance than the accusations concerning Russia. And as for the feelings of ordinary Democrats, I mean, I don't see how that's controlling one way or another. There are plenty of Republicans who believed during Obama's years that he was a secret Kenyan Marxist Muslim. Um, What is happening now is qualitatively different. The president is not cooperating with the transition. He has not conceded. The incoming administration cannot do what it has to do. And he's perpetuating, in essence, a damaging fiction. That is different than Democrats not liking the result of the 2016 election. I think that's generally right. It's not comparable. And you had something interesting happen with Stacey Abrams when she lost the 2018 run for uh, Georgia governor, in which she did acknowledge that Brian Kemp would be certified as governor, but she also was very vocal in her critiques of what she viewed as voter suppression within Georgia. And then since then, she's been working very hard to try to register voters so that that would not happen in 2020. And we saw the results of that this year with the very close Senate races that are going to go to runoff in January, and also with Vice President Biden carrying the state. So I do think it is different. Yeah, and just to John Fasman's point about how Democrats behaved in 2016. In 2016, Joe Biden, as the sitting vice president, chaired the Electoral College that confirmed Donald Trump as the 45th president of America. And that involved him at points having to calm the outrage of Democratic electors who are unhappy with the result. All right, thank you both. We'll be back in a bit to discuss the impact of the no concession transition on US national security. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. President Trump's activity since Election Day seems mostly to have been focused on rearranging his national security staff. By my count, at least nine senior people have been fired or forced out. 
I spoke to Susan Hennessy of the Brookings Institution. She's executive editor of the Lawfare blog and a former lawyer at the National Security Agency. She's deep in the weeds of all this, and she's particularly worried about how a Trump political operative has wound up as NSA general counsel. In the federal government, we have two types of officials. We have political officials who are appointed by the president, come in when the president takes office and leave when the president leaves office. They are political actors in a good and positive sense, in the sense that they are politically accountable to the lawfully elected president. We also have the career civil service. So the career civil service are individuals that endure across presidential administrations. These are apolitical people that are there to do the day-to-day work that has to be done. And we have a system designed to separate out those two groups. The perception here is that this hiring of an individual who lacks the traditional qualifications for what is an important career role of NSA general counsel, that there was political interference in that process and that this represents something that's known as burrowing. Burrowing is when you take a political appointee and attempt to impermissibly and illegally convert them into a career role in order to allow them to endure beyond the end of an administration. That's really interesting. How enforceable are those laws and norms against burrowing? When burrowing occurs, and so you have a person who's made this uh, transition in violation of the rules, because they now sit in a career role and they are entitled to those protections, the process for rooting them out is more complicated. The challenge for Biden will not be whether or not he can actually get particular individuals out of office. He has a lot of power to do that. The challenge for Biden will be how does he do so in a way that doesn't look like the very thing that Democrats have long accused President Trump of doing to explain that he's taking this remedial action in order to depoliticize the intelligence community and uphold this merit selection process. And that's going to be a real messaging challenge because Biden has to not just remediate what's happened during the Trump administration, but also rebuild and restore these really important norms of civil service protections. We haven't talked about Christopher Krebs at the CISA, he was fired for contradicting Donald Trump's version of events on the election. How concerned are you about that one? I think there's sort of two ways to think about it. So Chris Krebs, who's the director of CISA, which is the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Protection Agency, essentially the agency responsible for securing U.S. election infrastructure. He's a political appointee. He falls within that category of people that the president is entitled to remove for any reason. But whenever we take a step back and think about what actually happened here, the president of the United States fired someone for doing their job. Chris Krebs' job is to ensure that U.S. elections are conducted free of foreign interference, any kind of impermissible domestic interference, and that these systems are administered with integrity. What he's done in the days and weeks after the election has been to contradict the president who has been lying about the integrity of those systems in a way that's really, really damaging to the United States. And he was fired for that. John Fassman, when Donald Trump lost this election and then fired senior people at the Department of Defense and at the National Security Agency, there was a lot of concern, some of it somewhat hysterical, I think, 
arguing that this might be the prelude to an attempt to cling on to power. Some people use the word coup. That's not what's going on here. Joe Biden will be inaugurated as the next president on January the 20th. Nevertheless, what's going on here requires some explanation. It does. And I think as with a lot of things in the Trump era, it's hard to discern precisely what is happening and why. It's clear that there are a whole lot of people cleared out of senior civilian positions at the Department of Defense at around the same time that Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, was fired. Now, Esper had been in Trump's crosshairs for a while, ever since a kerfuffle over over the tear gassing of peaceful protesters at Lafayette Square, so Donald Trump could be photographed holding a Bible. And so it's not clear whether he has fired Esper and the other civilian appointees at DOD out of out of pure spite, whether he installed people at DOD just for sort of resume burnishing favors to them or for some other nefarious purpose, although I'm not certain what purpose that would be. But again, whatever the purpose, sort of as a matter of principle, it's not a good thing to happen after the election for the president to alter the national security bureaucracy in this way with these questions being asked without answering why he's doing what he's doing. The fact that we are even having this conversation is itself a a damaging and worrying thing, I think. It's funny because it's not just national security, right? I mean, it's across a whole number of agencies. At USAID, the deputy administrator named Bonnie Glick, she was fired November 6th. Um, she had been supportive of transition planning. She had prepared a over 400-page manual for the next administration. I was really struck because I, I spent a lot of time covering energy by the firing of Neil Chatterjee, who was the chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. He was fired November 8th. And this is what seems like an obscure role, but is actually hugely important in governing American electricity markets at a time when those markets are changing really quickly. And he was pretty conservative. He had been a senior aide to Mitch McConnell. During his time at FERC, he had gotten heat from clean energy groups for the way that FERC dealt with states that had aggressive clean power targets. But also in September, he and FERC had said that they're open to proposals of carbon prices from the entities that operate regional grids. So maybe that's why he was fired. But I think that his firing and the firing of a whole number of other people just shows, you know, I think it's a challenge sometimes to try to read strategy into some of what the Trump administration has done. And that can be a bit of a losing game. And perhaps there's a strategy here, but you know what? There may well not be. It may just be that a certain political appointee did one or two things that the president didn't like, and so they're out now. Or maybe he's just trying to sow chaos or none of the above. It, it, it's hard to get a coherent pattern here, but I think the only conclusion that one can take is not one about the president's intention, but rather the effect. And the effect is continued instability. I was going to say something very similar to that. It feels like over the past four years, Donald Trump has fired a lot of people in various agencies. And often commentators have have tried to spin these facts into some grander story about some coming plan that the president has. But then on closer examination, it turns out there isn't really a plan. And I think what might be going on here, two things really. Thing one is that Donald Trump loves nothing more than to have attention on him, which is why not conceding is a pretty good strategy for him. That keeps all the attention on him, less of the attention on Joe Biden. Um, Firing people has a similar effect, I think. 
And second, I think it's just a way to continue to look like you're in charge of the situation, even though you've lost the election, you know, to prove that you still have authority to go and fire a bunch of people and replace them with another bunch of people. So I think it may be no more complicated than that. It's funny because there are presumably other ways that he could demonstrate his authority that would be more constructive. Um, George W. Bush in December of 2008, when the financial system was in crisis, he was still issuing executive orders to allow the U.S. Treasury to make big new interventions. And Donald Trump, of course, is in the midst of of a crisis of his own with COVID-19. And he has been touting vaccine results, but hasn't been doing that much else. So I think there probably would be a more constructive way to demonstrate his authority than just firing a bunch of people. One official who he has not fired is Emily Murphy, who heads the the General Services Administration. And she is responsible for issuing what's called a letter of ascertainment that essentially says we recognize that the next president has won the election and allows the transition to begin, releases a bunch of money to fund the transition, gives them office space, and allows the sort of work of background checks and security clearances to begin. Usually that happens within a day of the election being called. That has not yet happened. And there have started to be profiles of her that are popping up in the media about how agonized she is over her role in this process and how she is, I believe one said she is very quietly looking for new employment while also sort of tearing her hair out over what to do. I have some sympathy for her. Um, She is in a difficult position. On the other hand, there's clearly a right thing to do here. And I have to think that if she actually did believe that Donald Trump had won the election, she would not be as agonized as she as she professes to be. This is a funny instance in which Washington and, and certainly within the White House and within Congress, there continues to be a huge amount of acrimony. And it's interesting that if there was an actual coup going on as John Prudhoe, I think you've pointed out, then probably the markets would have tanked and they really haven't at all. They've been buoyed by this vaccine news. Biden is a a steady hand. I think you see different uh, business leaders just wanting to get on with it, right? I mean, Jamie Dimon, who's the CEO of JP Morgan, has said that we need to honor the decisions of voters. Um, This week, he was airing some frustration with Washington, you know, pass a stimulus already. Is it going to be 2.2 trillion, 1.5 trillion just split the baby and move on, is what he said. And so I think that you see some in the business community just kind of wanting to get back to the the task at hand, which is getting the virus under control, passing a stimulus, setting up a, an administration and a government that feels stable. They're not freaking out about what's happening in Washington, but I think patience is also running thin. Yeah, it's interesting, Charlotte, some of the business lobbies like the US Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable that tend to be somewhat sympathetic towards the Republican Party have no time at all for what Donald Trump is doing at the moment, seemingly, and want to get the transition, you know, going and started and get Joe Biden well on his way towards the inauguration. I expect one of the things we're going to be covering quite a bit over the next couple of years is the relationship between the Republican Party and businesses in America as the Republican Party possibly in a post-Trump era evolves into being something more like a nationalist, populist workers' party and less of a party that asks first, well, what's the interest of business here? Okay, thank you both. Before I leave you in peace, I have a quiz On the 3rd of December 1960, The Economist wrote that Republican hopes of overturning John F. Kennedy's election win were dwindling. We also reported on worrying developments in the newspaper industry. 
Detroit was left with only two daily papers. The Hearst Empire was giving up on America's fifth largest city as TV gobbled readers' attention. In what year did US newspaper circulation peak? Hmm. Oh, that's a great question. I think circulation peaked in the early 90s. Yeah, I think it's late. It's later than you think it would be. Um, I, I would say, you know, 1983. This feels like the price is right. I'm going to go, I'm going to do 1994. Fasman is closer, I think, and gets the point. It was 1984. That, that shows the power of completely random guessing. Thank you. <laughs> A famous ad with an Orwellian theme, directed by Hollywood hot property Ridley Scott, ran during the 1984 Super Bowl. What newspaper-killing new technology was it touting? I was touting the personal computer, wasn't it? Wasn't it an Apple ad? Well done. The Apple Macintosh home computer is the right answer. John, you get a full point for that. Congratulations. The computer sold well, despite costing more than its rivals, possibly thanks to the acclaimed commercial, but also because it was so easy to use. It was the first mass-produced computer with a mouse. I think I knew that because the Redskins lost the Super Bowl that year, and I, was, I grew up in D.C. and was glued to the TV. Thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who's left such lovely ratings and reviews. Please do continue to spread the word. You can get in touch on email as well. That address is radio at economist.com. Thanks very much for listening. We'll have more checks and balance next week. <laughs> <laughs>